So we're in Acts 12, um, and this, uh, if you remember this book when we first started, um, Jesus, before he ascended, kind of went through this, uh, it, was, it was a royal process, really. And if you think about it, this is the Son of God. He could have kind of left and went back to the Father any way he chose. You know what I mean? Like he could have just turned around and vanished, or who knows what he could have done. But he kind of chose this process, and it turns out that this is a, a very normal process for the, for the Caesars of that day. It actually started with the Ptolemaic process, where when they would die, they would, somebody would see them ascend, would, would, and it would come out. So we witnessed the king ascending and, uh, to heaven, and as the king would then, his spirit was witnessed ascending, it gave him a demigod um, aspect. So he was now made divinity, and this would allow um, his heir to be considered a son of God. Um, so this was kind of how they maintained kingship, because back then, you know, every time a, the kingdom would change hands, it was a very volatile time. And so if you could say that the king was deified, ascended, um, was the way the word they used, then his heir had a better claim to the throne. And so, um, but up until Jesus... They still had the body. So they, the body would be put in the crypt, but somebody would, would witness the spirit ascend to heaven. And if you go to some of the, um, oh, there's a big arch in, uh, in Rome, and it shows a scene of, the, of one of the king's uh, spirit ascending. His, his body's laid out in burial, and his spirit is like ascending out. Um, and this is, what they, this is what they believe happened. And for some reason, Jesus kind of shows this, this theme, but he also at the same time uh, gives his kind of royal decree. He says, you will be my witnesses in, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is what a new king would do when they took the throne. They would immediately send out heralds, because this was before the days of Facebook, when you could just post it on Facebook and everybody would know. You had to send out heralds, and they would ride through the kingdom and declare we have a new king. The, king, the kingdom is safe. We have a new king. There's no wars for the throne. It, the, the heir has ascended. And so Jesus chose these kind of images, these kind of kingly images of both the ascension um, and, the, uh, and the sending out of heralds um, to kind of announce his new kingdom. And this is how he starts the book of Acts, um, kind of saying, you will be my heralds, you'll be my witnesses, you're going to go out and announce this new kingdom to the world, that there's a king on the throne. And the only problem with this was there was already an earthly king on the throne, and so this, um, this created some tension in the book. And so we talked about how uh, the, the church started right there in Jerusalem, where Jesus said it was going to, the Holy Spirit fell on them, they had this big explosive moment, and then persecution happens, and they have to scatter. And ironically, they scatter right into the place Jesus said would come next, which is Samaria, and from there, the church just kind of works the outline. They, uh, they start in, in Judea and uh, Jerusalem, they go up into Samaria, the gospel goes into Samaria, and then the persecution chases them. If you remember, Paul, uh, he was Saul at the time, got decrees from Jerusalem to chase the church um, up into Samaria and beyond. And so he, he chases them, and then Jesus on the way to Damascus kind of reveals himself to Paul, and the church really embraces Paul and takes him in and loves on him. And the persecution stops. As soon as Paul becomes uh, a believer, as soon as he becomes a follower, the persecution just ends. And it, the way Luke says it is the church had peace after that. 
And then the church goes farther north. We talked about last week, gets up into Antioch and kind of reestablishes a new headquarter. And then tonight, our persecution picks back up. We, we get into tonight's passage. And this is a story um, where Luke starts off by telling us something Herod does. And this is where it's kind of fun. Um, when we do biblical interpretation, there's a lot of different branches we get into. Um, we've got textual interpretation where we're concerned with each word, and some people like to get into the, the nuances of the Greek words and what each one of them means, and we stay in, in, in a little text, and we get in, we got historical interpretations, and we go back and we look at how it compares to other historical documents and, and things like this, and one of them is, is what we call narrative interpretation, and this is where we take either a chunk of scripture or really big chunks of scripture sometimes, and we look for narrative arcs. We look for kind of, uh, you know, what was the grand story this person was trying to tell? Because sometimes we get so caught up in the nuances of a verse or a small piece, we miss kind of the grand narrative arc that's being told. And so I always kind of use the word picture. It's like when you stand um, kind of up on a hill and overlook a valley. And when you're overlooking the valley, you can see how everything relates to everything else. Oh, that hill goes down into the kind of river at the bottom. The river flows down into the big river. And you can you just see how all the relationships work and how everything in the thing works. And that looks very, very different than a hike through that same valley. When you hike through that same valley, you see some of the ugly stuff. You might see where a fox killed a rabbit and it's bloody. You might see where a, a tree is rotted and fallen down and, and there's mold on it or something. Or, you know, you can see and, and really you can walk uphill and have absolutely no idea how long you're going to be walking uphill. It just feels like it's going to be forever because you don't know how things break. And so sometimes when we Bible study, it's like that walk. We find passages we don't like. And we're like, yeah, why is this in here? Gross. Like, I don't even understand this. And we get into some passages where it's like, is this ever going to end? And you feel like I'm going to walk forever. You know, and like numbers. Anybody ever read numbers? Oh, God. Yeah. So the bummer is there's some, there's some beautiful nuggets hidden inside all of this drudgery. But um, anyway, so... Um, so sometimes we have to zoom in and, and we go on the hike and we see all the details and we see stuff that confuses us and, and sometimes it feels like we're lost and we have to zoom out and look at a bigger narrative, look at a, the, the wider picture. And so sometimes we're going to do both. And this one, the reason I bring this up is because this passage just feels like it was told narrative style. Like Luke is telling, and normally I don't, I'm not a huge fan of where the chapter breaks were put because those weren't there originally, we've added those. But this is one when it's pretty darn close. I think they missed by like one verse. They, he throws in one little verse that should have gone in the next chapter. But other than that, I feel like they grabbed one story that Luke told and kind of told it in narrative style, which is kind of the way we're going to pull it out. So it feels like Luke is talking about two kings here. He tells kind of a story of two kings, a tale of two kings. And we're going to talk about those. One is Herod, obviously. And this is Herod Agrippa which is, Herod was the family name, so it was kind of the last, what we would call the last name, the surname. Um, he is nephew of Herod Antipas, which is the, the Herod that tried Jesus, the Herod we know the most about, was Herod Antipas, and grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who conquered Israel and built the temple, established several of the cities in Judea, um, kind of the, the big Herod that did um, a ton, probably the richest man on the planet, in his day. Um, when he died, Rome was so nervous about the kingdom he had built, they split it into four parts and put four rulers over it so that they couldn't, and kind of intentionally picked four <coughs> heirs who didn't like each other much to make sure that they wouldn't combine and challenge Rome. 
So Antipas was one of those, um, and that was the uncle of, I mean, uh, yeah, that was the uncle of Herod Agrippa, all the Herods running together. Um, this is Agrippa, and Agrippa is kind of unique in the Herod family because um, most of the Herod family stayed in Palestine. From Herod the Great on, they kind of, half of them kind of became converted Jews, the other half kind of stayed Romans, but they pretty much all stayed in Palestine except for Agrippa. He got in trouble as a youngster, and so they sent him to Rome to grow up in court. They sent him kind of like boarding school, almost in Rome. So they sent him up into Rome, um, and he made friends with some people in court, kind of got connected, but also got a gambling problem and got really into debt. And so he had to actually flee Rome um, to keep from getting thrown into debtor's prison. And so um, he borrows money from his uncle Herod Antipas um, to get free to pay his debt. So now he owes his uncle a bunch of money. He comes home, gets in a big argument with his uncle. They get in a fight. And his uncle calls his dad in and says he's going to have him thrown in prison. So he has to flee again. So he runs to Egypt. And while he's tra traveling to Egypt, he's he's sounds like one of those kind of snotty rich kids because he's like, uh, he, he's overheard saying that he wishes Tiberius would just die so that Caligula could, could ascend to the throne because he and Caligula had made friends when they were young. And so he was wishing for the death of the Caesar, which is illegal. It was treason. So he gets arrested and thrown in prison. Um, so Antipas is in prison when Tiberius dies and Caligula becomes emperor. So Caligula hears the story. He writes to Caligula. Caligula hears why he's in prison, pardons him, gets him out of prison, and makes him king over Palestine. So this kid has been uh, bounced around. He's he's uh, he's really had everything handed to him. He's never had any responsibility. When he does have responsibility, he kind of blows it. And because his buddy is emperor, he gets placed in charge of basically all of Judea, all of Palestine, Samaria, Judea, that whole area. And this is him. So this is kind of a, um, a kid who's had some redemption and wants to, wants to do it well. Okay, so he's, so when at the beginning of this passage, when it says that he, um, he saw that it pleased the Jews, he was, he was very sensitive to that. He was very sensitive to the job's approval rating. Like, how am I doing? Is this going to sound good in Rome? Am I, am I doing well? He's a, he's a political player. Um, and so here's how his story kind of starts. It says, Now at the time, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So this is something new. This is something the church hasn't faced before. If you think back, like the church has been kind of riddled with persecution, but they've had a couple internal conflicts that they weathered really well. If you remember, they kind of had to deal with the widows, and then they had the, I guess, trial, or if you want to call it that, when Peter got back from witnessing to Cornelius, and those went fine. Like they, they dealt with their conflict, did that. And then they had the, the persecution from the Jews, and the Jews was, it was a little different because they were kind of outsiders persecuting them. But th you got to remember, these guys still considered themselves Jews. To them, it wasn't um, as much a conversion as it was a completion. Like they had been Jews waiting for the Messiah, and now the Messiah had come. So now they're just Jews who have their Messiah. And so nothing's really changed for them. They still consider themselves Jews. So this persecution from the Jews 
would have felt a little bit like an internal persecution. It would have been like one denomination picking on the theology of another denomination. It wouldn't have felt like really an outsider as much as just somebody from a different sect persecuting us. Now granted, they were dragging people, it was a real persecution because they were dragging people out of their homes and stoning them or throwing them in prison. So it was a real persecution, but it was from within, if you want to call it that. Now this one, it's from outside. This is a Roman. This is really the Roman government now persecuting the church, and they have full authority of the sword. Like, they have the full authority to kill at will. And so this is the first time the church has had to face this. And Luke kind of does a really cool job of the way he lays this out, because he's telling a story that's really an old story, and he tells it in a very similar way. To the, to the Jews, this would have been um, part of their kind of national narrative. Um, and we're going to get into that a little bit. This cover um, was from 1966 Time Magazine, Is God Dead? And it was kind of a story about the diminishing um, religious environment in America, that uh, kind of the struggle of Christianity and whatnot. And really it was a throwback because it was actually talking mostly about the late 1800s where you've got Frederick Nietzsche writing, God is dead, we have killed him. Um, and Nietzsche declaring kind of the death of God, and then you had uh, Freud saying that, that belief in God was nothing more than um, like a, a child's attempt to create a father figure was the way he put it. It was something we created in our psyche to fill this need for a father figure. Then you've got Marx saying that religion is nothing more than the opiate of the masses. Um, you've got Darwin showing an alternative to God's creative nature. So. All those guys were in the late 1800s, right around 1880, and all this is kind of happening at once, and they're, they're declaring God to be gone, a thing of the past. We now have rationality, and really that was a throwback, because um, if you go back to like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you know, you've got this kind of God against God, you know, thing, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, Darius and Daniel, you've got all these stories about our God versus your God. And it's a, it's a really strong narrative in the Jewish faith, and it goes all the way back to Pharaoh, where you have Moses coming in, a shepherd, I mean, which is really a kind of a low-end job back then. And a shepherd walks into the royal court and says, my God wants you to let my people go. And Pharaoh's answer was, who is this God that I should obey him? Like, he never even heard of the God of the Jews, had never heard of Yahweh. His, his name had never gotten out. But what's awesome about that story is then, if you fast forward past the Exodus, when the, and really 40 years in the wilderness, when the, the spies sneak into Jericho and talk to um, uh, Rahab, uh, her and her brothers were shaking because they were like, we have heard of the God of Israel, and we know he's going to destroy our town. So somehow from Pharaoh, from whatever happened in the Exodus, was a big enough deal to everybody around that when they go into the Promised Land, the people are afraid of the God of Israel. And it started out at the beginning of the Exodus, you got Pharaoh going, Who, which God? Because you know, it was a polytheistic environment. So they're like, which God is this? I've never heard of this God. Why should I obey this God over the other gods? And so God got his name out. But the story of Israel has always been, my God against your God, has always been... And what's ironic is it always looked a lot like this story. And Luke tells it kind of masterfully. So in the blue corner, uh, we've got Herod. And he's the big political player. 
He's got the power of the sword behind his side. He's he's a he's a politician. He's like I say, he kind of took a kind of took an exit poll after killing James. And yeah, I got good reception from that. Everybody seemed to like it. The polls came in. Everybody's happy. Let's let's grab Peter too. And so they're gonna he's gonna run with this. He's obviously very politically savvy. He's powerful. Like as soon as Peter disappears, he just has the soldiers killed, just like that. These are Roman soldiers. They had a lot of rights. Um, these are guys who could call on kind of the Roman law to back them. And he has them killed at the you know snap of a finger. And he's got whole cities that are fearing him to the point that they're throwing him big festivals so that they can go, oh, your voice is like the voice of a god, not of a man. You know, they're so he's got the worship of of whole towns that are afraid to be on his bad side. So this is a big power player. This is this is a a major king. And then on the other side, in the red corner, this is kind of funny because uh, if you remember when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus, the way he saw it, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he sees persecuting the church as persecuting him. So the church here represents Jesus. This isn't really the church. This is one king against another king. And the, the funny thing about the story is Luke makes the church look ridiculous. He really does. If you look at this, this is like sitcom quality stuff here. Because, first of all, they take, um, they take James with virtually no resistance. He just he kills James. There's no sign of any resistance. And when he sees it goes well, he snatches Peter up. Again, no resistance whatsoever. And the church, all they can think to do when Peter gets um, arrested is pray. They just call a prayer meeting, which I'm sure to... Herod had to look like a completely powerless move. So there's, you know, they, all they did was kind of bunch up and, and go and pray. And then Peter has an angel set him free. He has no idea what's going on. So while the church is praying, they're having like an all-night prayer vigil. Peter, and this has always jumped out at me, when the angel got there, he had to tell Peter to get dressed. So Peter didn't just go to prison. He like got undressed for bed, like took his shoes off and got into bed like, I guess I'm here for a while. Like, and he's asleep. The angel had to wake him up. So while the church is having this all-night prayer for Peter, Peter's dead asleep in his undies in bed. Like he's not even, he is not even like waiting to be released. And so the angel, and I, this is, maybe this is just the way my brain works, but I just love the thought of the angel standing there waiting for Peter to get dressed. Like, come on, dude, this is taking forever. What is taking you so long? So, so, so he tells Peter, you know, put your shoes on, get dressed, let's go. Chains are falling off, doors are open, and, and Peter has no idea what's happening until everything's over. He's standing in the street, it says, and the angel's gone. And that's the first time he realized what had just happened, and an angel just set me free. So he goes to the prayer meeting, and the girl's so excited, she doesn't even let him in the door. Like, this is literally sitcom stuff. This is the kind of stuff that when you see it happen, you laugh, and you go, that would never happen in real life. She sees him, turns and runs to tell everybody while he's outside, and he's obviously just escaped prison, so he doesn't want to get recaught. And he's standing on outside the gate of the yard, like, are you kidding me? I'm going to get recaptured out here on the streets. Nobody will let me in. So she goes back in. Nobody will believe her. They're doing this whole, would you be quiet and stop bugging us? We're praying for Peter, you know, thing. And they don't believe her. They finally go out, and they see it's Peter. They let him in. And so it's, it's just ridiculous. It's just crazy. And this is the other king. This is the other, this is the, what Herod is up against. So you've got this huge Roman political player on one side, and you've got this absolute bunch of goofballs on the other side who can't seem to get their stuff together. Like they, and this is an old story. 
And this is this is David standing there going, this armor's too heavy for me. Let me just have my sling. I know how to use a sling. This is a little kid walking onto a battlefield against a giant. This is a shepherd walking in to talk to a pharaoh. This is this is the story of Israel. And and here Luke is telling it again. He's he's telling this same story that's been told over and over again. So the battle lines are drawn. You've got this huge Roman king on one side and this little bunch of folks who can't get their stuff together, this bunch of kind of bumbling screw-ups on the other side. And Herod draws the sword. He draws first blood. He kills James and everybody likes it. And he seems to be set out um, to continue his persecution. And I love how Luke ends it. And Luke actually lays out some of Herod's political intrigue. He kind of lays out some of the Herod had this relationship with this town, and they were he, they were afraid to make him mad and blah blah blah, which is is a little unique. It's, you can tell he's just trying to set this thing up because for the most part, the New Testament writers never deal with the the politics of the day. There was a lot going on in Rome at the day at the time. There was a lot of shifting of Caesars and these huge uh, moves in power that are going on and. For all we usually see is the the uh, the New Testament writers that just ignore it. They're like that's that's news from another kingdom. That's not about our kingdom. And so they just, for the most part, ignore it. But for some reason, Luke jumps into it a little bit. He tells about this intrigue, and then he says, "On a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man.'" Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Now tell me Luke did not do that on purpose. Like, it's, it's awesome. Blue corner, oh, he died. Rotted, worms, gross. Red corner, doing great. Not just great, multiplied. Like, prospered and multiplied. A couple of tension points I want to pull out before we talk about what all this means. And the first, well, one tension point and one little teaching point. The tension point I, I hate. I absolutely hate. Nothing, nothing fun here. And that is that James dies and Peter gets set free. And there is no explanation as to why. There's no explanation as to why James didn't get set free, too. Like, why, why... Herod didn't pull a sword and the angel step in and save James. Why one Christian died and one Christian lived. We don't have an explanation for that. And I wish we did. I wish there was I wish there was something. I know that's what we all hunt for when something happens and we don't understand why it happens or when someone dies, when something terrible happens to somebody. And we want and we hunt for reasons. Maybe something was off. Maybe something that you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we want all these answers. And yet here right at the beginning when the Holy Spirit's so active and signs and wonders are happening. James dies. And Peter is set free and history tells us that later he gets captured and dies. Why was he set free this time and not the next time? But we just don't have those answers. But here's what I do want to bring out. And this is this is what I love. Is even though James died, and I'm sure there was people who were close to James, people who loved James, there was friends, family, of James involved. 
he's killed, seemingly just by a madman, doing nothing, just a guy who wanted to please the Jews, and just and really just testing the waters, steps in and kills James. And when Peter gets captured, the church's response is still prayer. Nobody says, what's the use? James was killed. God doesn't even listen. There's no answer. There's no sense to it all. Even in the midst of tragedy, the church knows we still pray. That's what we do. Peter's been arrested. We still hit our knees. And a lot of times our tendency is when bad things happen is to get discouraged. You're like, why should I pray? Does it, does it even matter? Does God seems to spare some and not others. Does it even matter if we pray? And I can't even answer that question, but I can tell you that's what the church does. The church prays. When something bad happens, we hit our knees. And that's, that's what our job is, is to hit our knees. And so, I hope, <laughs> I wish I had something better for this tension point. I wish I could say that this is, you know, there's, there's something great here. But if I did give you an answer, it wouldn't help. Because if you've ever been where something terrible happens, and I have, um, answers sound like platitudes. You know, they sound shallow, they sound thin. And, and the reality is, um, the one thing I can guarantee you is come chapter 13, the one person who is not disappointed about the way chapter 12 turned out is James. Because come chapter 13, James is with Jesus, and he's thrilled in love and life. So I can promise you that. I can't promise you that any of this made any better sense to the church while they're going through it. But I can guarantee you by chapter 13, James is feeling pretty good. So that's really all I've got for that tension point. I wish I had more. Here's the other thing I want to get. And this is kind of fun. We have a tendency. This is an element. It says, when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jews. And this is, a, this is an often missed element of the Christian life. Um, because we always tend to feel like, if I could have been in those days where I saw God do the big miracles, if I could see him heal people or raise the dead, if I could see the, the, the big stuff, it'd be a lot easier to believe. And then here you got Peter, who is living the big stuff, and he doesn't even understand it until he looks at it in retrospect. A lot of times, if you're not seeing the movement of God, if you're not seeing God doing big things in your life, you probably need to turn around and look the other direction. Because a lot of times, the big moves can only be seen when we look at them backwards. When we look back at our life 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and look who we were 30 years ago. Some of us. Not me. Some of us. Sometimes we only see the real hand of God after it's happened. And Peter, I mean, how cool would that be? Other than the fact that you're naked in front of an angel. That would have been weird. But every other part of that would have been really cool to watch the angel open doors and knock out, you know, uh, soldiers and open the gates of the prison. And for the most part, Peter missed all that. It wasn't until he's in the street that he goes, God did something amazing back there. And that's what our life is like a lot of times. God did something amazing back there. And I couldn't even see it until I got here. This is why I love, like, things like anniversaries. Like, I'm, I'm a sap. Somebody's like, somebody's like, we've been married for 53 years, and I just start crying. 
That's awesome. That's the hand of God. And you can only see it when you stack it up over time. Long faithfulness in one direction. There's no greater miracle. There's absolutely no greater miracle than, than faithfulness in one direction. And you only get to see that when you look back over time. You only see that when you see the hand of God just leading and guiding you and hanging on to you when you want to leave. And there's that time I didn't go to church for a while and then God yanked me back. And you just you see all these awesome miracles that God did that you can only see when you look backwards. The power of retrospect. I think it's important. So how do we respond to this? First thing I want you to catch is this is the kind of story we're a part of. We're an underdog story. We've always been an underdog story. No matter how far back you go, if you go to Moses and Pharaoh, the shepherd, all the, the good stories from the book of Judges, you know, when you've got uh, this little band of nobodies who are up against a huge walled city, and the way they win is by marching in a circle for seven days and blowing trumpets. Like, And then you've got Gideon who's like, the angel comes to him and is like, oh, Gideon, mighty warrior. And Gideon goes, um, I, my we are the, the weakest nation in the world. And my tribe is the weakest tribe of that nation. And my family is the weakest family of that tribe. And I'm the weakest amongst my brothers. I'm literally the weakest guy from the weakest family of the weakest tribe of the weakest nation on the planet. And you just showed up and called me a mighty warrior. Like, and he's hiding, he's threshing uh, wheat in like a, inside the barn, like hiding from the Philistines. And the angel says, says, mighty warrior. And they win a battle by like smashing crockery and lighting torches so that the enemy thinks they're bigger than they are. And they like run around and it's dark and so they're just like swinging swords and killing each other and nobody has any idea what's at the end of the melee, Israel standing there going, that was awesome. <laughs> the Jews were always outnumbered. Every story, every great story we tell about, you got David and Saul, you got this king who was chosen because he was tall and good-looking and broad-shouldered. And God says, I want that ruddy little shepherd that's out in the field. That's my king. And then that little shepherd shows up and brings down a giant and then hides out in the wilderness until he becomes king and he becomes the king. You got Elijah and, and Ahab and Jezebel, kind of the kings of the northern tribes, and Elijah's in a cave going, God, just kill me as I would live anymore. They're going to kill me anyway. And Elijah brings down Ahab and Jezebel. Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one of our favorites, like one of those stories that you can never be a youth pastor without preaching on at least ten times. You know, just and it's because three kids, three teenagers, stand up for what's right. They say, "We're not going to bow." And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, steps in. Daniel and Darius, you know, get thrown in with the lion's den. The whole story. And then you've got Jesus. You've got this carpenter who's standing up with Pilate in a big trial. And the whole city yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Our story is an underdog story. Our power comes from our powerlessness. We tap into the story when we recognize we have no power. That's where the beauty of this story comes from. And this is important. And don't, 
chase me out of here for this one. We have to be real careful. We don't allow ourselves to be co-opted by the power structures around us. Sometimes this happens where we go to the power people hoping to gain power. I'm, I'm talking about politics. So I'm going to stop beating around the bush. Talking about politics. When we put our hope in getting the right law passed or the right thing outlawed or the right, where that's where we think our power comes from. Like if we can just band together and get this outlawed or get that law passed, finally our nation will be great again. That's not where our power comes from. Our power comes from our powerlessness. It comes from our love, from our sacrifices. And I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying that at all. We're, we're Americans. We're supposed to do that. We should do that. We should vote our conscience. But don't ever feel like that's where your power comes from. Don't let yourself get sucked into that. Because our power comes from a whole different kingdom. And that's our second point. Is we have a king. This is the tale of two kings. Sometimes we, we tend to think of Christianity as a belief system. It's something that you mentally ascend to. All the, the right tenets. And sometimes we tend to think of it as a behavioral system. You know, that it's something that comes with you know, these rules you have to follow, like it's a, it's a discipline. But this is a kingdom. This is a, this is a citizenship that we have. And it, has, and it has rules and laws and an economy and a market, and it's different than the rest of the world. And sometimes we don't get that. Sometimes we, we help somebody, and you ever have someone come over and help you and you think, hey, anytime you need something, I'll gladly help you back. Like, you want to balance those scales. Like, something in you wants to say, I can never be one down on somebody. I'm talking to you, get off the list. I saw Judy give the elbow. That's because we're, we're not used to the economy of this kingdom. We talked, I think it was last week, about power and, and how... We tend to think in terms of power, who's in charge and who's not in charge. you got Jesus coming along and saying, you want to know who's in charge? It's the one that serves. He, he washed feet and said, that's what the leader does. They wash feet. He says, if you want, you got to give. you got to give away what you have. Then you'll receive. Like the, the economy's backwards. The market's upside down. Everything in this kingdom is different. And we're citizens of that. It is a different life. It should look different than those outside the kingdom. We should love different. We should serve different. We should look at other people different. We should have we should, we should have different values for people. Jesus said things like, when you do the least, just the least of your brethren, you're doing it unto me. That's the economy of our kingdom. But we have a tendency to try to simplify it down to a list of do's and don'ts. And it's not that easy. It's a whole different place <laughs> that we live. And we have a king. He's in charge, ultimately. He calls the shots. And so when we read stories like this, we have to recognize that we have rival kingdoms. Paul calls them principalities and powers. The princes and power players that, that tend to mark us. 
they tend to combat us, they tend to persecute, and they, they don't like when we do things the way we're supposed to do them. So number one, we're an underdog story. We gotta, we gotta remember that. That our power comes from our powerlessness. And that we're in a, we're, we come from a long line of that story. Please don't forget that. Sometimes we tend to think in terms of numbers and impact and you know, how can we, you know, if we reach critical mass, you can, you know, then you can do so much more. We, like, we try to think in kind of worldly economies sometimes. But we gotta remember this is a really small group of people who ultimately changed the world. And no matter which one of these stories you go back to, if you go all the way back to Pharaoh, if you hit any of the stuff in between, you get back to Nietzsche, Darwin, Freud, and, and uh, Marx, you know, those guys. You go back to 1966 Time Magazine. Wherever you go, there's always somebody saying, this is the year, this is the year. This is the year we knock out that other king. This is the year we finally end that other story. This is the year when it's over. And then you've got Luke's story. Oh, that king? Yeah, rotten, dead, worm, worm food. Jesus, still going. Still going strong, still doing awesome. The word of God grew and prospered. prospered. As we go to the table tonight, I just want to uh, draw our attention back once again to the the symbol um, of our power. Really the, you know, the the uh, big players in world history, you know, they like emblems on their swords and their, their big crests, you know, and it's usually like eagles and fists and thunderbolts and swords. And, and then you've got our kingdom that has broken bread and poured out blood. Like that's our that's what goes on our shield if we had a shield is uh, sacrifice. It's somebody who said, here's how I fight. I give you my body. I give you my blood. And that's the most powerful thing you can do. So Jesus, uh, on the night of his arrest, took bread and broke it. And lifting it up, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And this is, after the meal, he took his cup and said, this is the new covenant made in my blood, which shall be poured out for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. So whenever we take this bread and drink this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, as we uh, partake of the table tonight above all we declare you king and we just want to be your subjects active members of your kingdom uh, and that your kingdom would be our first allegiance that we would be followers of Christ that we would be people of God first first and foremost and that all other allegiances would fall under that so as we partake of the table tonight, let it be an act of allegiance, a pledge of allegiance, that we would say, Jesus is my king. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.